When I look back on my childhood, it all seems kind of idyllic. I lived in a suburban community outside of a big city with houses that were on their own lots that had been built in the 60s. My parents were only the second owners of these homes. And it was full of families, and everyone knew each other. Next door was my babysitter, Terry, a teenager. And across the street was Mrs. Brett, who let me use her pool. And next door on the other side were Ernie and Pauline, and I used to ask Ernie all of these important questions about life. Like, Ernie, where's Bert? My mom became friends with other mothers in the neighborhood, and many of them had children my age. All of them were girls, Emily, Vanessa, Jackie, and Kit, and they too became my friends, and their families became my surrogate families. Vanessa had three younger siblings, and her mother would laugh when I would go over there for dinner because I would talk about how loud it was there, in contrast to my only child upbringing. And when I got to kindergarten, I quickly made friends with a boy who lived just a few streets over, who I hadn't quite encountered yet. His name was Aaron, and Aaron and I were pretty much inseparable for all of elementary school. He was always over at my house, or I was over at his, and we were playing board games, running around in his huge backyard, or playing with his two younger sisters. And because I want you to have an accurate picture of my childhood, I want to remind you, or tell you, if it's the first time, that I'm transgender, and I didn't transition until adulthood. So instead of picturing the adorable little boy I'm sure I would have been, <laughs> I want you to imagine a young girl with long blonde hair, but mostly worn in a baseball hat. And I'm pretty sure with my friend Aaron, all of the adults in my life used to joke that I was going to marry him, which is funny because it ended up being a little bit true because I officiated his wedding last year. <laughs> so, <laughs> to his wonderful wife, Amanda, not to me, thankfully. <laughs> so now, as I've been describing my upbringing, all of these people growing up, and I asked you to create a picture, how did you picture them? White. Well, if you did, if you pictured them all to be white, you'd be right. I didn't list a single person in this story who wasn't white. And I imagine that for some of you, this description of my childhood made you think of your own. And perhaps you imagined the people that you grew up with. Or maybe it made you think of your child's childhood and the people that they grew up with or they're growing up with. And if you're a white person, you could be reasonably sure that me, another white person, was probably talking about a bunch of white people. And you might say that that's a reasonable assumption, which it is, because with segregation as it is, it makes sense. But I want you to think about other stories that you hear, books that you read, stories that you hear in worship, stories that your friends tell you. When you think of these stories in your mind, without having any other information, what race are the people in the stories? They're probably white. I know they are for me. But why? And this assumption, by the way, I've learned 
is not only one that white people assume about characters who have no description. Korean-American author Linda Sue Park writes, if a story depicts someone who leaves their home and interacts with others in a public space, in other words, almost every novel ever, ever written, but if that character almost never considers their racial identity, then that character is white. And that's in all caps. That last part, that character is white. Furthermore, I think even when characters are described differently, even when characters are described explicitly as people of color, sometimes white people still think of them as white. I have a case in point, the Hunger Games novels. Now, I'm a fan of these books, and I read them before the movies came out. And I realized that I had pictured Rue, who's a character, a friend of the main character, Katniss, as a white girl. And I noticed in the movie that they had cast it, this part, with a black girl. And I was not upset, but surprised. And it turns out I was not the only one. Many people took to the internet, writing on Twitter about how upset they were that Rue was cast as a black girl. They wrote things like, not gonna lie, Rue being black kind of ruined the movie for me. And hashtag, stick to the book, dude. Well, dude. <laughs> the thing is, this movie did stick to the book. I can open my copy and see right there on page 45 that this character is described as having dark brown skin and eyes. Dark brown skin and eyes. And I missed it. Or perhaps I pictured a white girl with particularly tan skin in that moment. <laughs> Which begs the question, dark brown is compared to who? Who's the default? So you might be wondering, okay, so what? I get your point, Otto. We often picture characters and stories and books as being white. But what harm does that do? But I want to remind you that this picture of white as the default is just one small piece of a much more complicated story of race and racism and white privilege in our culture and society. And it's so prevalent that sometimes we don't even notice we're doing it. I know I, know I don't notice that I'm doing this. White feminist and anti-racist activist Peggy McIntosh enumerated in her 1988 article, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, 50 different ways in which she saw white privilege at work in her life. One of her points about white privilege states, I can turn on the television or open the front page of the newspaper and see people of my race widely represented. And this is absolutely still true today, almost 30 years later. But we don't even have to go that far. We can look into our own minds and find white people disproportionately represented. And representation in our media and in our mind matters. Just ask any young girl who's ever wondered if she could be president. Because if we don't see ourselves reflected in stories, if we don't see ourselves reflected in places of power, it can be hard to imagine being in those roles. It can be hard to imagine our stories being the ones that get to, get, get to be told. But if you are white, especially if you are a white man, like I am, there is no shortage of role models to look for.
people in power look like me. And this is just a very teeny tiny tip of the iceberg when it comes to white privilege. Now, I didn't ask you to do this exercise of imagining my life to make you feel bad that you imagined everyone was white. Because remember, you were right. But I think it's important to be aware that we're doing that. And before I go on, I want to acknowledge that we cannot make the assumption in any room that everyone is white. And I want to acknowledge that centering this sermon on whiteness, I am in fact playing into those very dynamics of making white the default. So white people, please be aware that even the fact that I'm speaking to your experience is another example of white privilege. Okay, but why? Why is it important that we're aware? Honestly, I, I didn't think about race almost at all in those times, in that idyllic setting where I was growing up. I mean, there were only a few kids in my classes who were people of color, and one family on my street who moved in when I was older. But race never came up. It never came up with anyone that I can remember, which made me think that it, it didn't really matter. I knew that racism was something that had happened, in fourth grade, I read about the Underground Railroad, the people who helped black slaves escape. But this primarily showed white people in a positive light as the saviors from this racist system that was over long before I was born. I learned that racism meant overt discrimination against someone for their skin color. I recognized intellectually from a young age that someone's skin color had no bearing on how smart they were or how capable they were. And so I endeavored not to see it. And by that I mean I endeavored to treat people of color exactly the same way I would treat white people. And that made sense. We get taught that all people are created equal, to treat others the way we would want to be treated. So it makes sense that without much other information, sometimes those of us who are white aim to treat other people like us, to treat other people as if they are white except that people of color aren't white. And by necessity, treating people as white erases their identity and their lived experience. It claims being white as the default. It assumes that being treated as white, that being white is the ideal that we should all strive for. Learning this lesson was painful for me. I want to tell you a story about it. I was sitting on the couch with an Indian friend of mine, and I have no idea what prompted me to say this to her. But I looked her in the eyes, and I said to her, you know, you don't even seem Indian to me. <laughs> Ouch, right? You see, I, I thought I was giving her a compliment. I thought I was saying, look at how great I am at seeing past color. And she cried. And I was shocked. I was floored. I asked her why she was crying, and she said, she said Otto, it's, it's not good. I am Indian. It's part of who I am, and I want you to be able to see who I am. 
And I realized in that moment that I, I, really, I really didn't get it. And what I didn't realize in that moment, but I do in looking back, is that my friend had given me a really valuable gift in sharing her tears and her vulnerability with me. Because many people from oppressed groups might have just laughed this off because showing people that what you said hurt them can often provoke a defensive reaction. And honestly, I might have been defensive in that moment. I really don't remember. And she took that risk. And her tears showed me that there was something about this experience that was beyond my, my reach because race had been something that was so rarely talked about when I was growing up. Debbie Irving shares in her book, Waking Up White, which I really do hope you'll read and come to the discussions for, about how she was in a class on racism and one of the questions that the instructors asked was how often do you and your friends and family talk about race? She answered that she talked about race maybe a couple of times a year. And she was surprised to hear that the people of color in the class said daily, that they talked about race daily. And this experience of not talking about race is very common for white folks like me. And the truth is that this is another part of white privilege, not having to think about your race. So it was eye-opening for her to realize that for people of color, this can be a daily experience. And that's in part because there's a history for people of color in this country that impacts us so much today. The economic impacts of slavery, for example, are still very much alive today. Black Americans have been free in this country for less time than there were black American slaves. And it's not isolated to the South because those of us who have family from the North had perhaps had businesses, people who worked in businesses that used commodities that were made in the slave trade, from slave labor. And once the slaves were freed, this massive gap, this massive economic gap from those who made their monies off the back of the enslaved and those who had been enslaved or were children of the enslaved was never fixed. And policies have kept the wealth out of the hands of black Americans through deliberate means, such as Jim Crow laws, redlining, and mass incarceration. And the reality is that those hundreds of years of slavery and inequality continue today, and has left us with unconscious biases about black people, and has left us with unconscious biases about people of color. And we believe that those people of color who act the most like white people, they are the good people of color. And that is colonization, and that is white supremacy. Okay, so I, I've said a lot of things, and you might be thinking, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But what can we do? Our responsive reading this morning was from the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King at the funeral of white UU minister, Reverend James Reeb, who was killed in Selma for his support of the marches there. And they describe an uncertainty and tension that I really think we can all relate to in this moment of history, of uncertainty and tension. And he describes carving a tunnel of hope through the large mountain of despair. 
Dr. King's words and the words of the spirituals that we have sung today and we have heard today describe finding hope and faith and finding the power to keep working, describing moments of despair and continuing on. And these are spirituals of the African-American tradition because so often they have been the ones who have had to have this struggle. But those of us who are white need to resist this as allies. We need to show up for them and for all of the people of color in the disease of racism that plays, plagues our nation. And there are a million different ways to resist. And the first is to notice. Notice if you are making white the default. Notice if you feel more comfortable around other white people. Notice what language you're using to describe people and things. Notice, and don't beat yourself up if you do. Everyone in our culture does because that's a part of our culture. But you have the power to realize it, and you have the power to make changes to the way that you think. Read Waking Up White by Debbie Irvin. Watch films and TV shows that don't center around the experience of white Americans. Side note, I'm going to see Hidden Figures tonight. Have you guys heard of this movie? Super excited because I'm really into outer space. And it tells the story, if you haven't heard of it, of three black women who helped NASA send people to the moon. Check it out, I'm super excited. You can also go to our racial justice transformation team events. You can go to events for the group Showing Up for Racial Justice, which now has a Metro West chapter. Realize that waking up white is a constant process. You will continue to learn more and see more than you did before. And it will be uncomfortable sometimes, and that's okay. It really is. But people, especially, especially us white people, we can't let fear keep us silent. We can't let the feeling of over, being overwhelmed stop us for, from doing what we can. And on this day, when we celebrate a civil rights leader who made so much progress, let us not forget that the struggle is not over and we need to show up. Let us say together, amen. Amen. amen.